because even when I was on the floor of that restaurant, when they dragged me out of the car, she woke up and my mother woke up and poked my father and said, there's something wrong with Vic. He said, what are you talking about? She says, he's screaming to me in his sleep. In my sleep, he's screaming to me, there's something wrong with him. So he said, oh, he's in the Navy. You know, there's nothing could possibly happen, Gloria. He said, he's in the, she said, there's something wrong. He's somewhere and he's, and he said, well, we'll know Monday. And when Monday came around. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Boy, I've got a great guest on the show today. He's one of those guys, uh, you know, maybe you've not heard of him. I, I, I didn't know him, frankly. Uh, a PR la- a gal reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this client. I, he's got this show coming up at the John Anson Ford. We set it up. I thought, okay, yeah, sounds great. I looked at his resume. You won't believe it. Um, Works with a Jackson 5, composer, arranger, pianist. Let's see, Jackson 5, Johnny Mathis, Barry Manilow, uh, George Benson, Natalie Cole, on and on and on. Won a Grammy with uh, Ray Charles. Yeah, his name's Victor Vanacore. This is Victor Vanacore. Some of you may know who he is. I was so happy to meet him, and boy, we had a great conversation. It's an hour and 40 minutes. I thought about splitting it up, but I thought, nah, you know, I'll let you guys do that. If you want to listen over a couple days, I won't blame you, but it's worth it. We cover all sorts of things. Uh, We talk about his uh, time in the Navy. We talk about growing up uh, back east. We talk about... failures and successes, his faith, um, near-death experiences, fate, all sorts of stuff. It's a kind of, I mean, it's the kind of conversation that I love to have. I meet somebody new, we, we gel, we, we look at each other in the face, and we have a conversation that means something about something, something that we can all uh, relate to. And he's had a hell of a career. So it's like the best of both worlds. Anyway, happy Monday. Hey, guess what? Trump's still president. I can't believe it. Every Monday, I think, oh, this is for shit. This can't be. This can't still be happening. It is. It's still happening. We're only eight months into our four-year sentence. Uh, I hope that changes. Maybe next Monday, I'll have some better news. But, uh, and if you're a Trump supporter, I'm sorry. You know, I feel sorry for you. Uh, Thanks for listening, though. I hope you keep listening. You know, maybe I can change your mind, because I'm a cool dude. Anyway... Hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening. Here's Victor Vanacore. Yeah, it's an amazing um, uh, piece of software for sure. I, I, I do uh, I do some light composing and I do some uh, I do another podcast, more of a narrative podcast, mm-hmm. and it's great. Mm-hmm. You know, it is great. It's a little bit overkill actually mm-hmm. for what I do, mm-hmm. but uh, I never really learned garage band i guess it's kind of like learning how to drive a stick in a porsche instead of a volkswagen <laughs> so it's and hard some of go. these young some of these young budding songwriters with garage band you, it's unbelievable unbelievable what, what they can do with these kids on I their mean, cell phones yeah on their cell phones sometimes one girl played me a typical song from church and her father did the bass parts yeah but it was like she did all the choral parts herself, you know, Spanner Alto. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, it's incredible. What do you, th- I mean, what do you think about that? I, I know there's a lot of discussion since I'm involved with the union and, and there's always discussion about piracy and always discussion, the big, the big, um, 
argument for anti-piracy is that it prevents proper musicians from producing their best work. And, I, and now the piracy part of it, as far as the financial aspect, I understand. But I, I personally think that uh, because of the competition, because of the ease of access to this kind of software, that the cream really rises to the top. I, I, I feel that there's more listenable music now than there ever has been. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's incredible. How else are we going to bring out the talent we have in this country, the unbridled talent? Right. I mean, I've worked in Europe a lot, and we have unbridled talent here because of our mixture, because right. of our demographics. That's right. So, you know, giving a $110 cell phone yeah. to someone so that they can do choral parts, that's fantastic. I agree. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, uh, I, I kind of don't even feel bad for the record companies and the, the old mob distribution. Their buildings are paid for. Don't worry, Omar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, okay. So I looked you up on Wikipedia like I do all my guests. I try and do just the, the just a modicum of preparation for my interviews, truly. Um, I like to be willfully ignorant, just generally in life, and then this in particular. And uh, what it does is it helps me get to know people face-to-face. I don't know you. I've, I've talked to you on the phone one time. But boy, you have an interesting background, um, a storied background in music, for sure. We were talking a little bit before we started the mics. and um, uh, Let's go over your, your list of, of uh, things that you do. You're an arranger, a composer, uh, a lyricist. No. Okay. Are you? Uh, tell me what else. What else? So arranger, composer, orchestrator. A pianist. Pianist. Conductor. Okay. But you you said before we started that your father was a machine shop worker, mm-hmm. blue collar. Your mom uh, was a homemaker, I would a imagine. Homemaker in the 50s, yes, just like all the wives after the war. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, how, how'd you get here in well, this beautiful I- studio? <laughs> uh, it's, it's not a long road until you look back. <laughs> <laughs> You're so busy studying and, and trying to move forward, nobody ever looks back and... Um, well, it was quite coincidental, actually. Uh, I was a pretty fresh uh, kid. I mean, uh, I wasn't a good boy, um, and we had a lot of children. No, no, as no, many no, as you no, could no, possibly no, have. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's go back. In what way were you not a good boy? Well, mean? I was just, I was precocious and just, just, just without abandon. I mean, I would just say and do everything I felt like it. If, uh, just, just like. Okay, I mean, you weren't lighting fields on fire. No, no, no. <laughs> right. I wasn't lighting fields on fire, but I was doing <laughs> things that were dangerous to myself, and we had uh, as many kids as we could have by the time I was five. So I was like, my mother, when she saw how the other children were, she thought there was something wrong with me. <laughs> now, if you hear her, well, I'm going to tell you all of it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, let's if, hear it. Yeah, because what the heck, yeah. you know. Ignorance is bliss. No, I right? want people to know you. You're, Ignorance you're is bliss. I was from guy. what I understand. From what I understand, I was terrible from the womb. In other words, I moved all the time, and my father couldn't even get a good night's sleep. And, yeah. uh, and he, um, he said, "Did you did you ask the baby doctor if this was normal?" <laughs> yeah. And uh, when I was finally born, uh, after about twenty months, my mother had my second brother Paul, who's my soulmate. We're like twins. Oh. And he, my brother Paul. My mother was worried because she he, she didn't feel any movement, you know. I mean, hardly any movement, any fetal movement, right up through the ninth month. And so then he was born, big, healthy, built boy. <laughs> so she's looking at this fresh one with the dark hair and this blonde with the blue eyes. And 
then came a girl, Madeline, my sister Madeline. Then oh, my by the daughter's time I was, name is Maddie. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah great yeah. name. And so, and then Robert came. Now I, I was, I, no, Robert hadn't come. I was about five years old. And it, and uh, of course, and I tell the story sometimes when I'm in concert, um, because it sort of has to do with the music. Uh, and of course you can edit out what you, what you like. Um, so there was no lithium, no lead at all. No, you know. <laughs> So the baby doctor, everybody had a baby doctor. You mean doctor kids were just being kids? Kids were just being kids. Yeah, like right. normal kids. Like normal kids. Right. Right. No seatbelts. We, right. we had milk in glass bottles. Right. You know. So healthy. Very dangerous. Healthy. Yes, very so dangerous. So much glass oh, around the house. God. <laughs> it's amazing oh, it's still here. You know, yeah. Cleansers <laughs> with no d disclaimers on them. Yep. You know. Yep. Uh, so we had an aunt. We were, now I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. That's where I was born. Mm -hmm. And at the time, in, in, in like many Eastern cities, and I'm I mean, I'm sure there's still some there today if they haven't been gentrified. But, you know, there, there was the Italian neighborhood, the Polish neighborhood, the Jewish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there was a convent not too far from the house. And uh, my mother was telling my aunt about the way she just couldn't handle me anymore. So the aunt said, well, look, why don't you take them to the convent? She says, I clean the floors there. And she said, "I, you know, I can ask the nun. Maybe they can just kind of get them in this. Well, we can't afford it. She said, well, no. She said. Don't worry about it. I'll do some extra work. You mean just to get you busy or what? Just to get to... me away from the house uh, and to get to... me away from the other kids okay. and just to get me into some sort of program school, or something. Some school, okay. right? Okay. So I was like five years old and I uh, went to the kindergarten and I had to stay there all day, like in the mornings and afternoons. Yeah. I stayed there all day, took a nap. <laughs> and at the end of the day at three o'clock, I went to the convent down the street with the nuns and I'd wait in an ante room uh, for my father to come at five o'clock. Um... And then during the time that I was in the anteroom of the convent, this old, uh, well, at, at five years old, everybody was old. Sure. Um, this nun came out. I know. We are we are those old people. Yeah, now. we are those old people now. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel, I still feel like I'm five, though. Yeah. Well, me too. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible trick. Sometimes I walk by a store and I'll see my reflection. I go, that can't well, be who me. Who is that? <laughs> <laughs> I got to bounce to my step. That can't be me. <laughs> so, uh the, you know, the nun came out. Her name was Sister, Sister Agnes Riccio. I'll say it again. Her name was Sister Agnes Riccio. And she asked me if I'd like to play piano. And she had a, uh, she spoke in very broken English. And uh, I said, sure. So she, I had, think. Did you have a piano in the house? No. She had a piano. There was a piano, of course, in a convent. So this is the, was this your first introduction to piano? Yeah. Basically? Really? Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So uh, um, she took me into the music room. And I, re I just remember that first day because she was a solfeggio nut. Sure. So I sat there and just did solfeggio, you know, without even putting my f hands on the, on the keyboard. And well, then, I'll tell you, at five, that, that sinks in fast. It though, does. It? it does. It's I didn't crazy. Even, well, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and then I'll get back to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was leading a band years later and uh, I had said something in Italian about the, about the, about, um, the dynamic and how I wanted it played and one of the alto players or somebody said, well, you don't have to be so pretentious. And I thought, wow, where did that come from? Then I realized that everything that I was communicating in Eng in music was in Italian. I am rightly so. I because mean, at on. five years old, I didn't know 
that it was Italian. But all I the just dynamics, know, all the dynamics. But, every, but yeah, but you know, as Americans, though, we don't we don't say morendo a morendo a fine. We say we say let's die, let's make that die to the end. You know, and yeah. if it's on the if it's on the music, everybody reads it. Yeah. But this particular instance was like in L.A. somewhere. I forgot. Yeah, you don't but, say Sforzando, You say uh, Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the breath push. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, I started to learn the piano and. Uh, and the Italian language only as it pertained to music, which was kind of cool. And uh, I mean, natural sounded like nature, a nature sign, a nature sign, nature, because she spoke Italian. Sure. Nature, nature. Okay. All right. Whatever. <laughs> nature. And anyway, so I started the piano lesson. She gave me a little color chart of a keyboard to take home. And wow. I would play it on the piano. I would play it on the table just to get my fingers with the cross, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the, the yeah. yeah. And, it's funny thing was her 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 only her when she would tell me about the piano and teaching in Rome and teaching in Italy when she was a young woman her she kept on repeating this one of her students Sergio Particarole mm-hmm. who I looked up later and he was very very famous but you know being my sort of my nanny because I spent more time with her than I spent with my mom I just thought oh she's just talking about this guy I, you know yeah yeah you know Sergio Particarole mm-hmm. and that was it so mm-hmm. years later I find out he was very famous at the at the Santa Cecilia. Did uh, did Cecilia somebody Academy. set this up? I mean, was this I a know, setup? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Like this woman just happened to happen. Well, happen you to know take what? I think piano. I think if you want to know that from me anyway, this is the way that I feel. I just heard this recently. These coincidences are God's way of retaining His anonymity, because we're all steered. We're we're all part of a plan anyway. So I'm I'm home to my father. What are you doing? I saw him practicing the piano. And, you know, I'm whatever. a kindergartner, whatever, whatever. whatever. As long as he's quiet, <laughs> as long as he's not killing somebody, yeah. you know, yeah. murdering his brothers. Yeah. Something. Well, then one day he comes to pick me up. I was about second or third grade at the time. Now, mm-hmm. now I'm doing two. I'm doing two hours of lessons mm-hmm. per day. Hi, Joe. Uh, I need to get out. Oh, I forgot there was another. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. Um, can I give you my keys? Yeah. Sure. Oh, I sure appreciate it. Thanks. I'm sorry. That's to... Joe, my son. That's Omar. Hi, Joe. That's the 23 year old I was telling Hi. you. Hi. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to be blocking Not a problem. You. Not a problem. Okay. So, uh, um, I could just see you later with the with the mouse and the, and the scissors. You know what? I, I generally leave most everything in. Do you really? Unless my daughter comes in and starts oh, babbling okay. and just messing. So, yeah. I know it sounds made up. So, he, she said, Mr. Vanacorp, please to come in. You have to listen to the, the you, you were sunny. You get comes in there and I think it was the Beethoven Pathetic Sonata or something. One yeah. of the Beethoven Sonatas. You know, third grade, fourth grade, maybe. And uh, could you imagine, you know, somebody calling one of us in to hear our third grader, you know, play something like that? And, uh, and uh, but he immediately went, you know, it was like before that, before the before he knew that, it was like, come on, get in the car. Yeah. He said, I'll open the door. Watch your fingers. You know. <laughs> really. Oh yeah, it was a total different change, and and also it was a change in myself because I realized, you know, I could do something. You know, I can, I can, I can. This, you, this you can must be, be special. Some, yeah, yeah, this is something special. Right. So we moved on. You know, it's like in the elementary school in the 50s, I was given a clarinet. I, I you know. Boy, those were the music, days. You know, brand new clarinet, brand new summer those clarinet, you know. Those, like, all those clarinets are long know, gone. Yeah. And and uh, um, the only thing I didn't like about the clarinet, well, it, it, within, the, I think, the third or fourth month or maybe the, the first year, um the nun discovered that I had a perfect pitch. So, um, 
she thank you she, i'm sorry to thanks she thanks. told she told my dad that uh um you know that i would never have any problems should i decide to study music because with ear training or anything like yeah that. yeah and then so it was a really funny story because when i got the clarinet and i started to i kept on saying to my teacher the the teacher during instrumental music i said why does my d you know why does my d sound sound like a c uh, and, and i and i just didn't like it i yeah. didn't I just completely froze right away. Especially with perfect pitch. I mean, yeah, that's I didn't, the, I didn't that's like the, the fact, liability part of perfect pitch. Yeah, exactly. And the bad pianos I used to have to play in clubs. Right. But uh, my father started hanging out at the at the music, the local music store. What? Because just to take interest in what you were doing? Well, no, because I was by that time. Now let's now I'm, I'm, we're jumping forward a few years. Yeah, yeah. I'm delivering papers, TV guides. Okay. Um, in the winter time, and it's like minus ten, minus and and. Why I didn't know any better. I just wanted to make four cents on a copy. Um, we decided to take uh, clarinet and saxophone lessons with Paul, and the teachers were the the owner of the music store was complaining that there weren't enough piano players in New Haven, Connecticut. There's only two or three, and come Christmas time, the holidays, sure, there was a lack of piano players. So my father heard that and he asked somebody, "What do they need?" He said, "Well, they got to know standards, you know." So he bought me a fake book. Uh huh. You mean Christmas standards? Just no, just just oh. any kind of standards. Oh, yeah, even oh, even oh. like club date, what they used to call like Cl Cole Porter and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, sure. Harold Arlen. Sure. So he bought me home at the time, which was the only fake book, which I still have, um, and all had was chord symbols and the melody. Sure. Three songs per page, sloppy xeroxing, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were legal because they were avoiding copyright. Right. Somebody put one together. That was the greatest thing somebody could have done. You were talking about piracy. That was the original piracy. That's right. Where they would take these songs, they would shrink them down in a mimeograph machine, another out-of-date word. Mm -hmm. They'd put three on a page, then turn it over, put three on another page, and you could buy these books for 15 bucks. And they had three, 400 songs in them, sure. enough to get through a gig. Sure. So he brings this home, and I, and he look, and I look at it, and, I, and, and now, because that's how I, like when I talk to classical players today, especially young people, and they see a lead sheet, they freak out because not everything is all written out. And that's what I, that's what I did. I went, right. but there's no left hand. I said, and the, and the right hand looks kind of simple. And he goes, well, yeah, but you got to make it up. You, you got to improvise. You got you to fake it. Yeah. I went, fake what? He goes, these are standards. I'll never forget it. I couldn't have been any more than nine or 10. And they will <laughs> last forever. And I'm thinking, what does he know about Oh, music? man. Yeah, what does he know? I'm the musician here. Yeah. I'm the one taking lessons. I know Chopin. Yeah. I know Beethoven. What does he know? And he's going, these will, these were, when the, I was a kid, these were popular, and they're going to stay popular. You know, gosh, if you could just be alive today and hear Michael, one of Michael Bublé's renditions right. or something. or uh, And so, you know, I, I we went uh, to a local teacher who taught that kind of piano. And, of course, my classical teacher didn't like it because now, with this kind of lessons, I wasn't waiting to turn the page on a Chopin impromptu. I would continue playing it by ear. By the time you were 10? Yeah, 10 or 11. I would continue playing it by ear, even if I, because a lot of this cla the classical music to me was, a lot of it was finger memory and rote. Right. So, then, but then I started to hear it. I started to hear it as key centers because- And then the pr progressions. And yeah. the progressions. Sure. And they were a lot simpler than these uh, tunes that I was playing from mm -hmm. the, from the fake book because the in pr in progression wise. Well, you don't yeah. go around the circle of fifth so much. And exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, uh, so I started taking and I then I then my teacher told me, look, if you learn three tunes a week, you can do you can you can play gigs. You can. My father even said it. Three tunes a week, you don't even have to memorize them. And so now, I was said, this important to your family financially, or was he really no, just trying because to he get saw you? How, because 
we had to work so hard because he had to work so hard. I think, I think his his salary at the time in the fifties, like late fifties, like fifty eight. I was maybe ten or eleven. I was uh, twelve by the time I was ni- in 1960, 61, 13. I started playing professionally when I was thirteen. So in the he was he would say to. Uh, they told me at the music store that these guys make between fifteen to twenty dollars per gig, and he said, and sometimes some of them work three gigs. They work a Friday night, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday night. So I'm thinking, wow, he's making ninety. If I can make forty-five, you know, then I can help out, and I can also. He used to give us our own haircuts. I could also pay for my own haircuts. Oh, my son's going to say that at some point. You know, we can afford his haircuts, but I love cutting his hair. You know, but, in the, sure but then, it. but then, it, in the and back then, we he did it out of necessity. Yeah, because he had to make the money stretch with all those children. Yeah, it was a great way to grow up, though. I mean, I, it was my, my. We're really close, my brothers and my sister. Yeah, and we we laugh when, now today because we look back on it, and you know, when our children and our grandchildren have. Now, I mean, they have more than what we did, but it, but you look back and you go, wow, no wonder why we were a great generation. I mean, because we didn't have anything. Yeah. So we had to make up our own. That's we right. There was none of this, right? So it's funny you mention that because I'm doing that with my four and a half year old. The first couple of years, as you know, as a parent, it's just like being a, it's like Navy SEAL training. It's just like torture. It's so difficult. And so we did rely on the TV and we did rely on that kind of stuff. And just recently in the past month or so, we've, just taking it away. We we turn off the TV. We watch a little. We'll watch a little bit of a show while Mama's making dinner, and then that's it for all day. No phones, no TV. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to see in my son w- the the best version of me when I was a kid. Right. When the I focus. was running around and when yeah. I was making things up and making forts and playing games with my toys. And it goes away if you don't promote that. We have oh, to promote it now. We, we have didn't... to every every. It's incumbent upon every parent and grandparent to not let the phones and the little iPads and and you know like if you're in an airport like I I said God look at that little kid he's so well behaved and I walked around him on the other side just to see and he, sure enough there's a cartoon yeah. on the thing in his lap yeah. and I'm thinking to myself well no wonder there's no focus no wonder why these kids they're never bored to, they try to find a, a meaning in life and they latch onto the wrong things yeah yeah you know, they're never bored you have to be and bored you have to be bored that's where ideas come from. That's, yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. It is. I, I mean, tell my son, be bored. <coughs> William, be bored. It's okay to be bored. We used to do plays. We used to make up plays. My sister would be a guy. We'd play like we'd do whatever we had. A, whatever. And I, there was an old piano down in the, in the basement. We And that was our playground. We had a Victrola down there. Mm-hmm. And we would put on these productions. And and uh, and even when rock and roll came around, we, you know, when the Beatles came out, that was a big influence. And we started sure. playing Beatles songs. And But getting back to the... So I got the fake book. I learned the songs. And then uh, one night, my father gets a call that they need a piano player at, at, a, at a, uh, a bar and grill. In the East Coast, there was always these bar and grills, much just like the, the bar and Goodfellows. Okay. Yeah, just like that with the funny looking lights hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. So I did my first gig. I had... I, I, we, I called a few people... Um, to find out what the stand, like what they would call from normal songs, yeah, and what I so I learned some, but then I put some paper clips so that I can get to the tunes quick. Cause yeah, yeah, let me put you on access a little, just a little bit more. So because these um because these um veterans like to jump from song to song, sure, and maybe not even end the song. They just want some interlude music, and so the first gig was kind of disastrous. But um, I made a list of what I what they called I didn't know, and they was like, "Come on, kid, hurry up, get the song up." I mean, I, I wasn't even I wasn't even an adolescent, you know, and they didn't have the patience, and you know, or they'd hold up, "Okay, here we go," and I didn't know what three down meant. Yeah, you know, like the week later, I knew that it was three flats. Yeah, yeah, three up is sharps, right? Yeah, key of A. 
So there I am, you know, but my father was so strict. And so that no matter what these guys did on the gig to me, it, it didn't compare to how strict he was. So, if, if they yelled at me, it didn't make any difference because, you know, he was stern all the time. You say that with such a smile. I mean, do you have great memories of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it shaped my character. You know, it shaped, I mean, it, it shaped my, it shaped my, I could take anything, you know. It's, my brothers are the same way. Yeah. It, it just, you know, when you have a father that's not, um, I won't say that he didn't hug us all the time because my mother certainly did that. But but he wasn't he, was more he wasn't a, cruel though. No 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 yeah. no 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 no. He yeah. he loved he loved very much. But like his father, they they did whatever they knew felt normal. It was like, right, come on, let's go. You know, like for rough. like yeah, yeah mm-hmm. rough. Mm-hmm. Like we had a we moved to a place that you know he made a pond in the back, and when the pond the when the pond froze over, you know he would make sure that he went someplace. The Salvation Army got these funny looking hockey. St- skates shine them up on his grinder you know old beat up hockey you know yeah and he looked got a rivet gun and was almost became a shoemaker and a skate maker overnight and we were out there playing hockey he's teaching us how to play hockey and when we look at the old slides because we have slides of it you realize that's how he showed his love come on yeah. let me do this with you because he loved being with us spend time you, you know, know that's that's, that's number it. one it, number one that's we, what the phone and the tv takes away exactly from time and you look at the old bicycles yeah you see the same bicycle a different color and another slide when at five years later, mm-hmm. then you see the same sure. different color. You see the same piano you in the take background. Take care of your stuff. The same piano in yeah. the background. So, uh, and the piano he bought out of a bar that was on fire. So, <laughs> and my remember my mother saying, "Take it to the shop first. I don't want any. I don't want it to smell like smoke or gin or cigarettes or <laughs> liquor or whatever." Yeah. So I, he said, "Okay, fine. That's how the, the upright piano." Then finally, we got a baby grand later on. But uh, so you started making money at thirteen. Thirteen years old was my around my first my fr- and I got a cabaret card because and a letter from the state that I could work in a bar as long as there was a restaurant attached to it. Really? Yeah. What did you do with the money? Well, some of it I gave to my mom. Yeah. Did that cause trouble at home? About no, you absolutely having- not. Okay. Oh, because when the other guys got jobs, they gave it too. Because you know. We would hear, you know, when you come in, a, you, when you hear, put some more potatoes in with the eggs or, you know, we had pasta a lot. And um, today, you know, go have sense. fettuccine Alfredo, Alfredo, <laughs> you have fettuccine Alfredo in a restaurant, you know, people pay big money for that dish. Yeah. And and that's fettuccine Alfredo was a what they call the depression dish. Right. You know, the milk's about to turn. Exactly. You got a exactly. Eggs. Yeah. A couple of eggs. And uh, yeah. Um, so. Uh, but I'm I'm not embarrassed. It was really funny because one time my father went to fix somebody's boat in the in the Thimble Islands in in, in Connecticut, and uh, um, it was one of his customers, a doctor that lived on the water. So I went with him, uh, and uh, after we fixed the boat, the the wife asked us if we wanted to come into the kitchen for some lemonade. It was in the summer. We went into the kitchen, and he looks and he said, "Oh, you have a piano?" She said, "Yes." She says, "Why do you play?" He says, "No, my son does." So, you know, and he was always into that to see who could hear me, whatever. Typical father. And so I went and played the piano. I played something for can't remember what I played. And then I came out and she had tears in her eyes. And then I said, Is, are you OK? She said, yes. She said, what do you practice on at home? I said, oh, I have an old junky piano. That that's beautiful. That piano. I said, my fingers really feel like they glide over it. <laughs> and she was, you know, she said, well, it's, we have all of this and nobody plays, you know. So she asked him, what do you do? He said, well, my wife sits there on the couch every night. And if she falls asleep, she'll wake up for a mistake. <laughs> uh, so, 
you know, you look back and it's, it's really, really kind of funny. And so that kind of led me. So then all the way through high school, clarinet, saxophone, piano was my main. I was gigging on the piano. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think I even bought a, an organ at the time. I forgot whatever portable organ there was in order to go out and play jobs where the piano was so bad. Yeah, you know, a little portative with you. Yeah, like a Farfisa or something, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, but but uh, you know, I all the contractors who knew who I w- was by the time I was seventeen or eighteen when I was in senior in high school. So if anything came in that that needed somebody that could read European chord symbols like sure. fa, ma, you know, they sure the movable. Yeah, yeah, clefs, yeah. Um, they would call me, and I wound up doing a lot of opera, uh, from especially the opera. Sure, who reads from, tenor clef, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, from Naples and from. Mm-hmm. from Rome they would mm-hmm. come into into Connecticut again we had a huge Italian population and every year for the festa they would have these celebrated um, singers come from Italy and uh, so it, it was great but uh, at 18 um, and because I was growing up kind of fast and, and still I was still precocious I mean well, now um, you're being uh, exposed to bars and, and bars yes you know and, that life and my father was there for every step of the way I mean he was watching me and uh, and and gave me talks in the in the in the car in the house how to behave how what to behave, choices to make yeah. I remember one funny line I'm going to tell you all of it so yeah, yeah. one and I and so most stories where there's a pizza kitchen out there and, and sometimes people say come on tell the story about that I'll tell you one yeah I was playing piano in a piano bar where the bar the people sit around the piano and it the baby grand they make it like a bar so that people can sit at it nice back then yeah and it had a little railings they could put their hands on it they put drinks on it as it, intimate as it gets as get, yeah and so the bass player is over here in the show and I think I was maybe a junior in high school and oh and you're and, playing in a combo and I'm playing in a trio yeah yeah and uh this lady was on my left and my dad was on my right and uh I'm sorry to interrupt were you singing as well no I was just playing so it's all instrumental it's all instrumental okay. yeah all Got piano it. trio Got it. and uh and you know, by that time I had pretty much learned almost of the tunes in the in that fake book. Mm-hmm. I still carried it with me. I still have it. It's in my. <laughs> but this lady bends over the piano and says to me, "Wow, I'd like to take you home with me." And I, and coming from the kind of household that we came from, very conservative, um, mother and father, especially my mom. Um, when she when the lady walked away, I lean to my father and he was kind of like smirking and I said what's the matter don't you think she has any children (laughs) (laughs) and he he, so we got in the car and uh, I said what was so funny and I just never forget he turned to me and just looked at me and said you'll figure it out (laughs) and so by the time I graduated from high school uh, um I went into the Navy because I, I, at the time, we didn't have the money for college and uh, uh, GI Bill. Yeah, yeah. So I figured if I went in with the GI Bill, and then they were telling me about the great music program that the United States Navy had. True. Yeah. And a lot of and a lot of college graduates from Juilliard, Manhattan, still that way. Ithaca, you know, Hart, mm-hmm. uh, Boston Conservatory. Yeah, the Marines. They, would go, and, they, were, they were going yeah. there. The Marines and, and the Navy still. If a you good listen choice, to their yeah. bands, even today, the yep. bands and orchestras, and no joke. Yeah, you know, and now they have a lot of immigrant Russians and Ukrainians mm-hmm. and, and uh, Serbians and Japanese Korean. Yeah, in their service, and they get automatic E five. I think after they get out of boot, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I went into the Navy program, uh, and uh, and that, that by going into the Navy program, I learned. Well, first of all, a lot about self-discipline. I was 18 years old, but I think even though I thought, and I could, I thought in one way, musically, maybe like a 25-year-older, but but emotionally, I was still 
you know, mm-hmm. hanging around with my brothers playing weird tricks. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to grow up and I wasn't very growing up at 18. Uh, so I went into the Navy and we had a, uh, uh, I got in some trouble right away. In the Navy? Yeah. Yeah. I went AWOL. And, uh, what, what do you mean you went AWOL? I went AWOL with a bunch of guys and, you know, I've never told these stories to anyone. Before. Yeah. What, what do you mean? Well, a bunch of guys wanted to go meet some girls up in Ohio. So we had the duty that weekend at the School of Music. We had to stay there. It's, it's called the duty. Okay, so you'd gone through boot camp. I went through boot camp, and, and I wound station. up at the School of Music in Norfolk, Virginia. Okay, as a as a naval as a navy man, as a as a as a not even an officer, like a you know like a, a midshipman, a, a, not even that. A, what do they call them? Seamen. Okay. So yeah, it was just like an E two. Okay, you know, wearing your bell bottoms. We're in the yeah the bell bottoms, yeah. the whole thing. Okay, and, at the, and but some of us were being looked at for the navy band. Okay. Because of our proficiency on our instruments. And so they put right. you in a in a not yet. I was being looked at. I didn't know. <laughs> uh-huh. So because you know your your high school record follows you around and you could you could see some of the remarks that you know while he's a good student he does a lot of crazy things and blah blah blah. Yeah. Some of the remarks from high school transcripts. So anyway, um I got in a bad car accident. Uh I wound up at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. I fractured my groin and my pelvic bone. So at the Naval Hospital, by the time I had gotten there, and I had also pulled a few tr- uh, tricks at school, and uh, the, the commanding officer was already had it. He just didn't want a wild can in there. So, mm-hmm. um, But while I was at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, I think that was my epiphany as far as being a... I saw these guys coming in from the Tet Offensive and from Hill and this hill and that hill. Wait, we, we skipped over the AWOL business. Oh, so I went AWOL. Oh, yes, right. We skipped over the AWOL. So I went AWOL with these guys, and sure enough, we went with somebody that we didn't know in an old beat-up Chevy, and he didn't have any brakes. We, I didn't know that, or the brakes were real tentative. So we got into this awful car accident, and the car hit a rotary and then went sideways, tumbled over a few times, and wound up down in a ditch. And because everybody was AWOL, they left me because they wanted to get back to the base. You, so I was just you, in the car. Were you injured? Um, I had a, bro- a broken yeah. pelvic bone. You just said that. I'm sorry, yeah. Yes. And, you... and I had a, 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 well, yeah, I had a cut right here with the glass was still in it, and, a, and the glass was still in here. In your neck. In the neck, yeah, because I was against the window. So these two guys, when we hit the curb, we tumbled and we hit the curb and finally rolled over to the ditch. These two bigger guys, I was a lot smaller than, you know, just completely compressed me. So. Yeah. At least you didn't fly out the car. No, no, no. Yeah. So I was down in the ditch. They finally cut me out, put me on a... They dragged me up to a restaurant. I laid on the floor. And uh, um, then they saw the dog tags. and they put. But they had to take me to... I wound up in a hospital in McLean, Virginia. And when people bring up the word McLean, Virginia these days, and I hear it and I went, wow. Because I don't forget anything. I mean, I, all of this was part of my shaping as an individual. I, every one of these things was a lesson. Sure. I just didn't see it at the time. So I wound up in the... Um, I'm so glad you're taping this so you can cut out a lot of it. Um, <laughs> I'm not holding anything back either. So I um, wound up in the hospital. And then the next morning, I was screaming at pain because that the the pelvic bone and the, and the groin were both fractured. So, you know, you, there's no comfortable position when you... So I... Uh, I, I was taken to McLean, this McLean hospital, and then the next day the doctor was touching my feet, and he's going, gee, I think he's paralyzed from the waist now. I could hear them because I was still asleep, w- yeah. awake, but I was just afraid to open my eyes because I knew I was banged up. And uh, and uh, he's not getting any feelings. Well, you know what we can do is we can call Bethesda Naval Hospital, and he's in the Navy. They can come and get him, and they have more equipment over there. And so I opened my eyes up, and they said, how do you feel? And I said, uh, I don't know yet. I 
can you feel us touching your lower body at all? I said, no, I don't have any feeling at all. But you know something? I wasn't mad. I wasn't, I was disappointed in myself that I went with those guys. And I thought if this is going to be my punishment, I'm going to take it. So I was finally, I was finally transferred to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital a couple days later. And uh, the commanding officer finally comes over to me and says, okay, we ran all the, we, we, we x-rayed you. You have a bo broken pelvic bone and a, and, a, and a fractured groin. He said, um, and I, and I was in a ward with 40 other patients, all from Vietnam, all Marines. And I'm hearing guys moaning and groaning, pieces missing from them. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, so. Yeah, this is no joke. This is no joke. Yeah. And who caused this? I did. <laughs> so. Um, wow, the, what a, what a wake up call. Yeah. Wake up call. I, at that time now, I think I'm almost close to 19. So he sits on my bed and he says, and, and he said, um, he said, I called the commanding officer. He said, uh, I got your name tag. We looked you up. He said, uh. They don't, they don't want you back at the School of Music. and um, So we're going to temporary assign you. It's called temporary TOD, TAD, temporary assigned duty to the hospital. And they're going to change your your MO, musical occupation, your military occupational status. We'll find something for you here. And I said, okay, fine. And I, I thought, well. That's it. Yeah. So then my parents came down the following weekend. And by that time, I started to feel a little bit better. So I started telling them the marines my stories at home and and uh and i had them all hysterical because i was i mean all of them so when they came down they bought down 40 meatball sandwiches and they hit, passed them out to everybody and and you know word gotten around that i was a character you know so and it was the only navy i was the only squid with the marines yeah so i got to be friends with a lot of them uh, my parents left and as the weeks came, i started to get better and i started to get up out of bed with the crutches and everything and uh we started to i started to get go around everybody's bed and talk to them and and uh and then you know that i'd get talked to like you know well you're you're a squid what do you understand about us getting shot at and then i thought i sat in bed one day and i thought what can i do i gotta do something so i uh got in a wheelchair and wheeled myself around the hospital and found an old piano and uh so i got a hold of commander decker was the commanding officer of the Naval Hospital at the time. And I said, can we get that piano? It's in bad shape. Can we get a tune? Can I? Uh... And he said, well, what would what you? I said, well, I said, it's on wheels, on casters. I said, I can go around to the wards. I said, I can sing some Tom Lear stories. And, and I said, I got a lot of funny things and I, I'm, that I can play. And, and I'm not a singer, but I can entertain them. Sure. So be a morale booster. Yeah, be a morale booster. So I started doing all those Tom Lear, you know, the all the funny stuff he had out at the time. Uh, so, and they would push me around. They'd push the piano. I'd stay in a wheelchair because it was easier, and I'd play from the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I had them hysterical. I mean, it was like it was almost like everybody couldn't wait till three o'clock in the afternoon till Vanacor came around. <laughs> it's like I was a, my own USO. <laughs> so much so that I endured myself so much so that one day I was very, very, very tired after the um, uh, after one of my gigs, and I laid in bed, and they switched the guy next to me. They they gave me his, you know, there's, don't forget, there's just clipboards. There's, yeah, yeah. You know, there's no, yeah, so they switched the charts mm -hmm. and everything. Now all of a sudden I'm a, I'm a Marine and he's the, he's the Navy squid. And one of the generals came in, it might even have been Westmoreland, and I was sleeping, they put a purple heart on my blanket. <laughs> <laughs> and so when he, because at the time, at the time, you know, there was that anti-Vietnam thing. It was, sure. it was rife, to, sure. even in the hospital. Sure. Nobody wanted to be in. Sure. And, um, 
Oh, shoot. Studio. Hi, Father Mike. How are you? Um, Father, I'm in, right in the middle of an interview. Can I get back with you? All right. Thanks, Father. Bye-bye. So, um, do you get this purple We do it okay? We do, do, we we do, do it okay? Are you kidding? This is great. I mean, I probably don't hear this from most musicians. But anyway, it's so, yeah, yeah, yeah. they put the purple heart. Of course, it, when I woke up, they were they were hysterical. Yeah, sure. The general had already left. Sure. And they were hysterical. All these Marines, all all of them. Then we then uh, this guy Jonesy next to me, um, uh, he was the one that was like he was like my biggest fan. We would he would say, "Tell me the story about this," and I'd have to stop because he they laughed so hard there. But do you know that Commander Decker came back about oh about a month later and said, "Wow, the the death rate had had dropped." Because people didn't feel so forlorn, and yep. I thought he said, "You might have, you might think you're a screw up." He said, "You might think, yeah, you caused yourself to be here, but you know what?" He said, "You saved my patients. Yeah, you're saving them, lives. Yeah, you know." And and what I was doing before I played the piano, I was helping dipping them in the saline solution baths, so that they're the you know sure. when you lose it, when you lose lose it, it, it's all open. You have to be dipped in saline, and you know you're looking at muscle, and so we had to watch out how we held them, and and you know you start to feel, God, this could have been me if I didn't play the piano. I mean, I was I was allowed into the music program. Yes, sh should I be at Juilliard? Should I be at Manhattan? Yeah, but I'm here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'm here making people feel good. So, mm -hmm. um, um, it was really funny because once in a while I tried to, I would play something classical. I said, no, 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 no. Play that other stuff that you make us laugh with. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, okay, fine, let's do that. So, um, I got out of there. Commander Decker was nice enough to call the School of Music and said, "If you if you leave this man here for four and a half for four years, you're going you're you're wasting one terrific talent. He's got so much room to grow. He's and he told the the, the head of the school. He said, really? He said because when he was here, he was putting crabs in people's beds because it was the beach was not too far. It was in Little Creek, Virginia. Yeah. So I would get fiddler crabs and put them in guys' bunks and stuff like that. Stupid, just ridiculous stuff. So, uh." What happened? So Decker, Commander Decker came to my bed one day and he sat out and he said, look, he says, like, we have a couple of options here. I can keep you here. I can temp I can reassign you to the Bethesda Naval Hospital. I can give you, you can be an orderly. You can even learn about medicine, you know, during the four years that mm -hmm. you're here. That's the first thing. And you can finish your four years because I know you want the GI Bill. You have to have the GI Bill. You have to go to school. He says, or I can discharge you with a full disability, he said, and... Uh, Full disability, which would basically set you up. But yeah, in other words, an honorable discharge right. under medical conditions, you'll right. have it the rest of your life. Right. And I thought, and I thought, do you want you, to see yourself as a cripple the rest of your life? Well, that was just a cripple. But but in other words, that would be the easy way out. And yeah. my father used to always tell me, take the high road. You know, go. And I knew what I needed. And I said, no, no, no. I, I, if you can get me back into the school of music, he said, well, okay. He said, I, I think I can. I opened up a door. And he said, that's the best thing. He said, the best thing is to go back to the school of music. And and uh, and a lot of the a lot of the, well, one of the teachers that just passed away just now remembered all of it. Um, how when I came back the second time, how I was different. You know, I had a cane, mm -hmm. but uh, I was different. I was a little bit the the edge was off. You know, the and don't forget, you know, growing in growing up, going to high school, and then playing in these nightclubs and watching these people act i i thought well okay this is the way life is and so um after after uh after uh my training at the school of music um 
they couldn't i wanted to go to the naval band i wanted to go to the president's band but mm -hmm. they just felt that was too much of a risk but the warrant officer said to me uh warrant officer avery i'll never forget he goes look there's another oh, there's a position opening up in Gaeta, italy and he said it's the home of the sixth fleet they got a great band great leader they got a couple of great arrangers in that band uh and he said um the guy that's where you would have gone had you stayed there because we had I, we had eyes on you, even for the school, either the president's band or Gaeta. He said, but I think you would do well out there if you can stay out of trouble. So I thought, well, let's see. I looked it up on the map. It wasn't far from where my grandparents came from. I thought this is sort of, this is, an, I'm being steered here, you know, so. Well, it seems like that started from the beginning. Yeah, it did. With this nun. Yeah. And then, a na and then a, an officer who basically took you under his wing. Right. And saw potential and right. followed through with right. it. It's and really the fact that I never remembered his, I never forgot his name, Commander Decker. I mean, I never forgot his he name. He changed your life. You know, I'm 69 years old. This happened when I was 18. Sure. But these people, they're, they're, it's like a catalog in there, you know, you. Right. And, you know, I always heard from great jazz players as I was growing up and playing with some of these guys, you know, never forget where you came from. Never, you know, look back and, and never forget how you started. So I went to Italy. I learned the Italian language. I took a couple of uh, lessons with a couple of conductors in uh, Naples. Um, I, 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 visited my family in Sorrento. Um, hmm. I was there for 18 months. I lived with a very poor family. Um, I didn't uh, particularly want to go live with the other guys in the new part of town. I stayed mm -hmm. with the family in the old part of town near the old prison. Well, Sorrento you was know. ruined during the war, that, wasn't it? Sorrento, no, Gaeta was straight and bombed. Sorrento, Sorrento wasn't hit that heavy because... Yeah, it wasn't because the uh, because it's near Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino is what really got... right. Well, I know that that De Curtis wrote the the famous song "Return to, to Sorrento", Sorrento right. for the what was it the 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 head of Italy or some, some big guy who came into town and he basically you know it's not a love song he basically is saying come back to Sorrento and help us yeah exactly exactly we're in trouble yeah yeah that's right it's a dump that's right it's a dump yeah well it all was I mean in the sixties Italy was a third world nation and when I left there I thought God it's got such great food great beaches why isn't anybody coming here. Like I tell people in this concert, and I, always, I used to go to the Vatican and walk in like as it was any church, like you can walk in a church in Highland. You walk in as if it was any church. Of course, it was all black. They didn't clean it until the millennium. Right. So it was was sooted black. Yeah. But I was there before and after. Yeah. yeah unbelievable, right? I got the store was open. Oh, and yeah. The light in there was incredible. Oh, yeah. Incredible. And now they've changed the lighting in the Sistine Chapel to where they've got LEDs so they can leave them on all the time. Yeah. They don't affect the... the yeah. And it's all been cleaned. And so, and a lot of the arias are about that, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm there and I... Oh, and like and I explained in this thing here, I, I felt that I felt a connection to to the Vatican. I And it was more because of... It was because of... I wasn't overly religious because how can you be at 19 or 20? Did you grow up going to church every Sunday? Or? Yeah, but it was more like... It was like to watch my father just have a nap. You, just what you did. But yeah. Paul and I were altar boys. Right. But it was what you did. Right. It wasn't... I mean, when you're 19 or 20 thing. years old, it's a, it's existential. It's, it's... it's 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 This is what people do. So you go... You're not, you don't think in terms of that. Right. You know, but when certain instances start happening and then your mind matures and then you're... You, you become spiritual. You, be, you become spiritual in, in much the way as an, as an Indian, an American Indian would become spiritual. They're not spiritual in, in the tribes of the Navajo and the Arapaho at 10 or 11, but they know that there's a... They know that there's, there's something a force. there, a force there, exactly. And so as you get older, you start to realize, oh my, this man, this is no coincidence. This can't be. This it's too, it's too it's too planned. It's too it's too. It gets actually scary because there's a few things that happened in my life that actually were literally scary that happened in my household, and um, 
and I and because my mother had such tremendous faith, I would say, you know, I'd almost get the chills, especially when my brother called from Vietnam one time and we weren't sure that he was alive. My brother Paul, he went to Vietnam. So, um, uh, uh, anyway, um, part of the so part of the story is so I I, I go to Italy. Mm-hmm. I'm living with this family. Uh, when I first there, uh, I, the ship takes off. We're going to go to play a concert in Barcelona and the Admiral mm-hmm. wants to visit uh, I think it was May, I think it was Richard Wagner was the uh, ambassador to Spain at the time and we we're going to go to Barcelona Valencia and the Balearic Isles uh, the band was the ship was just going to take us to Barcelona mm-hmm. so we, we went there and uh, as we were rounding the Gaeta Bay I noticed a fissure in the rock and I said gee what's that I said because it looked kind of strange and and I was looking and it looked like it just broke open I said well that's the split mountain and I, I said well what's 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 what, what's the story with it and again I couldn't take my eyes off and we were on the rails of the, of the ship and the uh, my bandmate said well it's uh, it, uh, uh, the story goes that, that the afternoon of the crucifixion the mountain split along with the other earthquakes that they had in, in all over the world and he said and you know as, as you can see it it's it's symmetrical it's it's symmetrical on both sides and I thought, wow. He said, yeah, if you can put it together, look at it. It looks like a... If you took a picture and cut the middle of the picture out, put them together, they'd fit. And I thought, wow. So when we got back, I uh, I went there with a, with a couple of other uh, fellow musicians, and uh, it was in January. And I decided to come... And when you're talking mountains in southern Italy, they're pretty high, 300 mm-hmm. feet off the water. Mm-hmm. We climbed yeah, down. Straight up. Yeah, yeah straight up. <clears throat> We climbed down a little bit, about about thirty feet off the water. I decided to go jump in. I was I saw meet you around the side of the beach, and I jumped in without even thinking. Great way to break your neck. Yeah. So I jumped in. Mm-hmm. I came. The water was shockingly cold, and also the rip current around lava rock is 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 uh, really amplified when the waves come in. They go out faster than they do at a beach because they just run right through the pores of the mm-hmm. you know and the jagged edges and everything oh. so I, I i was swept out i went down a couple of times they're on the mountain a couple of them run to the beach one of them goes back to the ship to get the, to tell the marines and i went down a few times and, and the third time that i went down they knew i knew that i wasn't gonna li- because it just i was too cold and i was just i just felt that this, this is it this was it and uh and i tell the story in the show because it's in this concert because it's part of the aria um when i woke up what happened was I went down the third time I just remember praying that because my mother used to say oh God my children have to go after me I can't you know I said I God forbid one of them uh, goes before me I don't know what I'll do and, mm-hmm. and so that's all I was thinking about was oh my God and with Vietnam going on so that's a real fear I mean you know that's yeah not, and my that's brother not Paul existential. was existential no real. and my my brother Paul was in Vietnam so this woman was like praying every day so sure. um but I always felt that connection. Because even when I was on the floor of that restaurant, when they dragged me out of the car, she woke up and my mother woke up and poked my father and said, there's something wrong with Vic. He said, what are you talking about? She says, he's screaming to me in his sleep. In my sleep, he's screaming to me, there's something wrong with him. So he said, oh, he's in the Navy. You know, there's nothing could possibly happen, Gloria. He said, he's in the, she said, there's something wrong. He's somewhere and he's, and he said, well, we'll know Monday. And when Monday came around, I called him at work. And I never called him at work. And so when he called my mother, she picked up the phone. She says, I told you there was something. She didn't even say hello. I told you there's something wrong with him. Where is he? He says, he's at Bethesda. By the time that he got the call and everything, I was already at Bethesda. Man. We got in a car accident. And and he said, you want me to come home? So he came home and he, and he was like, 
he didn't believe her that much either. But then the family started to really started to coalesce around this faith thing because when somebody has it, that's it's that strong. How do you how are you gonna <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you know how, how do, you, do you deny it? Yeah. How do you deny it? I mean, yeah. when they're when the conviction when the conviction goes beyond. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, it's like the universe. You can see that it's there and it's perfect. And then some people believe that it's because of their faith and other people believe because they're, they're intellectuals and it's mm-hmm. science, but basically either way, either way, it, either way. So, sure. So when you, so, so basically, uh, so getting back to the drowning, when I went down the last time, I just remembered that it was just really light. All I could see was light, a lot of dime sized bubbles, like when you're scuba diving mm-hmm. and it was just, just but the tremendous amount of light, which I later learned as a scuba diver, that's it gets darker. You know, it gets darker as you go down. Of course, you know, you get down thirty feet, it gets dark. All you see is blue. You know, yeah. Unless mm-hmm. the sun is really shining, you gotta, But basically, yeah, all you see is blue. So, um, the next thing I know, I can hear water running, and I'm, and I'm being thrashed up against very sharp rocks, and I hear water running. So I open up my eyes to see what the water is doing, and I'm being pushed by the water. The, by the waves onto this rock. It's lava. This lava. And I, when I open up my mouth, the water is coming out of me. And it's almost like the sound of when you when you when you dump a bucket. Sorry. When you dump a bucket, it's that kind of water running. It's not water like a spigot or wa- water running when you're sick or vomiting when mm-hmm. you're sick, so to speak, for lack of a better word. This is actually water running in it. And it was running out of me profusely. I mean, I thought enough to where it was making as much noise as the waves were. Mm-hmm. So but I didn't, I, to me, I was just like, oh, okay. I was lucky. Yeah, I was lucky. You know, but, you know, 200 yards, how do you explain the 200 yards? So, now the guys on the beach went to get the helicopter because they probably figured it was going to be a, it wasn't going to be a rescue. It was going to be a search because they saw me go down. They didn't see me come up because I came up under them. Right. They, yeah. Right, right. So, I figured, well, if anybody's going to come and rescue me, they got to see me. So, I started climbing up. I started climbing up the rock. And by that time, I only had a pair of khakis just on. cutting yourself up. Yeah, yeah. cut myself Unbelievable. Now at the top is the church of the split in the mountain. And they had come out of the church too now because the helicopter left the ship. Wow. They're coming around because so we had a, a marine detachment. Alert. Yeah. We had a marine detachment on the ship and they had repelling gear. And so uh and on most naval ships where there's an admiral, there's a marine detachment. And uh they sent somebody down and then a couple of my friends were on the top of the mountain and they said uh did you find him no no he's more out at sea and they could hear the pilot say no 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 there's a bo- there's somebody trying to climb up the mountain does he have a pair of khaki pants on and they said yeah he's got a blue shirt because he's got no sh- he doesn't have a shirt on but he's got khaki pants and they said well that's him dark hair he's that's him and so um they landed on the top the marines got out they um one of the guys came down with some repelling gear put it on me they they hoisted me to the top now my one of my friends said that I was like really really in shock. I was jet, you know, just just talking incessantly about how did I get there? Who, mm-hmm. how could I possibly gotten there? So the priest took me inside the church and then he was praying in Italian and me in English, and he said me say uh, catolico and I said I went like this. And so we went and we prayed, and uh, he came out and he, and he and they wanted to take me to the ship dispensary, but he got a hold of me first and he said, uh, I've seen some miracles. I've seen some nice things, but nothing like this. He said, you're going to live a long time. He said, but you have to realize what you were saved for. And he said, you were saved to do some good to somebody. He said, you have, you, I've seen, I saw what happened. He said, so, you know, without telling me that 
something special had just happened. He said, just go out and do some good things for people. Don't blow it. Don't blow it. <laughs> and that was, there's, now that's, now here's a man three, you know, I'm, I'm six, 9,000 miles, 6,000 miles away from my country. Yeah. And here's a, somebody else telling me the same thing that Commander Decker told me, you know, just go out and use your head. And so finally, like, I finally got it. So then I spent the rest of the time in Italy and um, I got I got back to the States and I, my mom never heard about Montagna Spicata, Split Mountain, until one of my friends came because I didn't want to tell her until I had a, somebody there, not to cooperate it, but just to just to be there to tell the story. So I told my friend Arthur, I said, tell her about Montagna Spicata. And my mother was like, you know, just completely. But anyway, I think that's all of that. And plus, the, you know, being in my home country of Italy, not my home country, but being in my the home of my ancestors, my mm -hmm. grandparents, sort of like uh, gave me a, a greater appreciation for what it is I wanted to go ahead and do. And um, and who you were. And who I was. Yeah. Exactly. And who I was. And I think that, uh, um, you know, when I finally was able to start school, I was, a you know, a man on fire. I was, you know, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of... Uh, the college that I went to, I couldn't get enough of playing for the ballet class down at New England Conservatory. Yeah, I understand you I went to Berkeley, yeah. yeah, Berkeley College. And then I, I spent, how did that happen? How did you choose Berkeley? Because all the the really great arrangers sure. in the Navy were they were unbelievable. Some of the things that they were doing, and I mean, they, they would turn this big band into like Gil Evans or Gary McFarlane or Oliver Nelson, mm -hmm. or or we would t or they would they'd play they play Nelson Riddle, yeah, yeah. Nelson mm -hmm. Riddle. Then they play a saxophone quartet, which was really a uh, a string quartet. And they'd have it written for saxophone quartet, and then they would do the same thing with a jazz piece, and make it sound like it was Bach. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I got, I have to get some. I got to get me some of these. Yeah, orchestration and arranging. <laughs> Orchest you yeah. know, and one day we'd sound, we'd sound like a marching band. The next day we'd sound like you know this great big band. We'd sound like Basie. We'd sound like Buddy Rich. And I thought, you know, I'm like uh, 20 at the time, 19 or 20. So I have to. You know, for, learn how to do that. I got to learn how to do this. I mean, yeah. And you know, and I knew that it came from the piano. I just didn't know what, where. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, that's why. And a lot of them were all Berkeley graduates, and they were so proficient and such great sight readers. That was that was the other thing. They were not only great jazz players, but like sometimes we'd go to these Italian churches and we'd sit in, and they, you know, the clarinet player would just like whiz through Open the it up. Yeah. yeah, just open, just play through some of that. You know, and uh, and I thought. And then the whole world opened up to me. I mean, it was like, uh, um, it was just a tremendous. I went, I went to Berkeley. I, I took, uh, in the four years, I took um, 12 semesters. So I went summers too. Mm -hmm. Took all the courses that they had. Were you on scholarship? Oh, you had no, the GI Bill. Bill. So you so were set. I was set. Playing at night, gigging at night. Uh, so you were making a living as well. And we're making a living as well, yeah. As soon as I got to LA, I, I bought my first home. And, I mean, uh, when you were in Boston, you were, you were oh, supporting yeah. yourself. I was supporting myself. I didn't realize, you know, never being away from home. But at the time, I, when I look back on it, the rents were very reasonable. Yeah. You know, school wasn't that expensive. And the GI Bill was paying more than the school cost. cost. So uh, it was a beautiful thing. And and uh, and at the same time, I lived, you know, not a, but a five-minute walk from the back door of the school. So I was there constantly, mm -hmm. all day long, mm -hmm. you know, and um, going home and then to my apartment and going out at night playing, playing gigs. I think... Uh, I had a, bought a, a B3 organ, uh, which I still have, and uh, was in a sort of a Chicago blood, sweat, and tears kind of a group. Mm -hmm. we were right, I was writing for that. But the big thing was the the writing and the composition and my fantastic teachers that I had. They, they made they made school so much fun, you know. The conducting teacher was unbelievable. So, Was uh, there ever a time in your life when you didn't want to be in music? 
when no. you thought, you know, I, I've got to study banking. I've got to do something. No, else. but my attorney told me one time, if, if I spent as many hours on my practice <laughs> as you did on your music, or if you spent as much time on a law practice <laughs> that you do on music, right. you'd be one of the you'd most- You'd be Ashley Bailey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Melvin Belli. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. right. So, um, so I thought, Melvin Belli, boy, that's a name I yeah. heard. He's from San Francisco, right? Yeah, right. Well, he was just once. as famous as yeah. F. Lee Bailey was, sure. right? Absolutely. Um, and uh, I always thought the law was fascinating, but uh, no, because I the, the to answer your question, no, because I got so much joy out of watching people um, enjoy music, mm-hmm. and uh, especially. You know, when you're 12 or 13 years old, and I went on the Andrea Doria on the cruise before it sunk, my grandmother was going back to Italy for the first time. My grandparents were going back. And my father, of course, he goes in in the salon, and he opens up the piano, and some lady from Italy comes over, and I'm playing something with these little hands. And mm-hmm. she said, wow, he really is. He's quite proficient in my... And uh, she said, I hope one of these days... What's his name? I said, I hope one of these days... Then I'm listening to her talk over my shoulder, and I thought, wow, you know, uh, you, know you, you hear stuff like that, and you think, well, this is what I want to be. And it, it wasn't so much about me. I just liked people enjoying it. And so the world I started was telling playing, you over and you know, over, this is what you should be exactly. doing. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, I was, and uh, then, of course, you know, when I started to get with other guys and they showed me how to reharmonize and how to do this and how to, you know, and how to do that with different songs and how to make them sound. And then, of course, I went to college and I had great teachers and I still worked at night and I came out here to L.A. and I studied with great masters. I studied with Albert Harris and Earl Hagen, Sidney Fine. Um, uh and I and I got such great advice from in the seventies from you know uh, guys who were already here for many 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 years that I met in the studio. Why L.A.? Why not New York? Well, I tell you, to tell you the truth, I, I, I when I was young, I went to the I started to take orchestration lessons with a man on Broadway, and I would take the train from New Haven. My I loved eating at the Automat. Mm-hmm. You remember Automats, dear? Uh, no, no. Automats were yeah, they, they were unbelievable. Sure. Hot French toast with a quarter. It's like, <laughs> So I used to teach. I used to learn with this guy, in a, in a, and I used to love the smell of old buildings and the music. And that's what he had. He had like a, he had like a. He used to keep all the scores, and they smelled and and uh, sure. yeah, and all the wood, the old wood, and the old funky sure. piano, and his cigarettes, and and he was teaching me orchestration. And the Braille building. We don't have a Braille building. Yeah, we don't here. have. No, <laughs> we have the Braille Institute as close as we get. So, um, but there was a when I compared it to my to the other experiences, to me it wasn't jazzy enough. It, to me, it wasn't. I like Broadway only for the songs, much that I like opera only for the arias. The tunes, yeah. The tunes. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And I thought, maybe, well, you know what? Maybe I'm. Maybe there's something wrong with me because the I don't melody. Yeah, yeah. the melody. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I can't sit there. But boy, when that aria hits, I'm glued. Yeah. And so, uh, and with Broadway, you know, when I get with a jazzer that was teaching me in Connecticut, he, he seemed so much more spontaneous than this arranger that I was studying with. And this guy was, a, I'm not going to mention his name. He was a great figure on Broadway at one time. He was a great orchestrator. But he wasn't extemporaneous enough. And I thought, you know, so that and the fact that to me, it, I didn't have the temperament to do the same thing every night if I was going to be on Broadway as a director. Oh, I didn't I didn't have that. As a matter of fact, I'm working night. on a play now. Yeah. And I have to go to Nashville to music supervise part of the plan, which is a story about um, the beautiful Vietnam era story written by uh, a close friend of mine uh, Kate Atkinson and she uh, I'm the arranger on the show mm-hmm. uh, and of course they have the musical directors there and everything I'm going down just to supervise and they know that I know you know I'll do the charts I'll do the writing and everything but you know to sit there and have to have to do that every night is mm-hmm. not 
I just, I just can't do it. I mean, even when I, if I'm going to play in a church in two Sundays in a row, that second Sunday is going to be different if I'm do, playing the same thing right. than the first Sunday. It's got, it's got to be. Well, I love classical music and I adore classical music. The one thing that you have to do is, well, I just like interpret. I like interpreting. Right. I like musical interpretation. Well, so. when we get to the sixth or seventh bohem, we're ready. We're ready for. We're ready for something else. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Bohem is one of the most beautiful shows ever written. Right, of exactly. Any time ever. Ex- exactly. But you know, yeah, I can't imagine doing seven a week or eight a week. Yeah, I, I mean, geez, it, we it, do seven in the course of three months, and we're still ready to to go on to some French piece or something and, else. And I write every year for the Pageant of the Masters. It's I a, love the pageant. You know, so every year I've got to do. I've sung ten... to that a couple times. I bet I bet we ran oh, into really? each other. Oh, really? You know, Dee Chalice. Yeah, way back when I was in college, yeah. we used to sing. Dee's fantastic. Yeah, she's great. So, and it's the same thing there. You're talking about, I mean, those charts, Bill Liston writes, uh, um, Alan, um, oh, he's a wonderful pianist. Uh, I can't remember his last name. But there's a lot of good arrangers that write mm-hmm. for that. And it's fun to go watch the guys' sight-read rehearsals because the music is very challenging. But then again, you know, after 60 nights, it's, uh, it's too much. It's, it's too much. So uh, At least for me. So, so was the, L.A. where it was happening? L.A. was where it was happening. Um my teacher at Berkeley I, I said to me, you got to go to L.A. He said, you can conduct. You can play from the piano. He said, you go out there. He says, you know how many jobs there are for p- conductor piano players? And he said, plus you're left-handed, so you can actually play with the right, conduct with the left. And, you know, and he said, and there's so many guys out there. There's so many brilliant musical directors. There's, and, and he says, and I can name 20. And there was, at the time, there was a lot of guys that were conducting for acts. And Vegas was going strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, this might be a good way for me to hear some great charts, too, because I'd learned arranging and stuff like that at Berkeley. But I, there was a lot of things I didn't get, like how to make a how to how to how to condense an orchestra down to seven pieces, how mm-hmm. to condense this, how to condense. Mm-hmm. Well, then I started conducting, you know, I, I, my the Jackson Five had a huge production show at the, at the MGM. So I, I got a job with them as pianist and then I became musical director for the Jacksons. How'd that happen? Um Oh, when I first got here, but this is going to be so much li- unlike. I've heard your other interviews. This is so different. I love it. I, um, I called up. I'm going to drop names now. I called up Pete Rugolo and Pete Jolly. They were the local, and Paul Smith and those guys were all the local LA um, big guys at the time. They're piano players. And uh-huh. uh, Pete Jolly told me, you know, don't call any piano players. Don't call any musical directors looking for work. He says, because you're not going to get any. He right. says, find your work through. Like I said, like, like how? He says, just take as many gigs as you can. Meet as many people as you can. Go down to the union. Play with those bands. Tell them you're available. And go to music stores. He says, just go to music stores and just tinker on a keyboard till somebody comes over. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I went to a music I went to a music store in Pacific Palisades. Come and this, on. And this guy comes over to me and said, hey, he says, you play pretty well. He said, uh, we're looking for a keyboard player. You know? I said, he said, you got any you got any instruments? I said, I got a B3 because I moved out and I drove a truck out here. I said, I have a B3 and a Fender Rhodes. He says, great. We're looking for somebody. So I went to rehearsal. and uh, Didn't know who he was? Didn't know? I mean, no. you just brought your keyboard? Just bought my keyboard and uh, bought, the, bought the Fender Rhodes. The singer shows up. He was late. I yelled at him. I said, listen, uh, I'm serious. You can't show up this late. This is the second time in a row. It's unprofessional. And I said, I'm not going to handle it. And he goes home and he tells his wife, he said, you know, this guy was at rehearsal. He said, he he could play anything. I asked him to play When Sonny Gets Blue. He said he knew all the Motown hits. He said he just, but he yelled at me. (laughs) And this guy was a big guy. I said, I didn't know whether to hit him or kiss him. He said, he said, uh, but he was on time and he's a stickler about being on time. Yeah. You're a pro. You know, so. His wife said, wow. So she's was working at a 
costume house in, in Hollywood. And she was working for Ruthie West. Ruthie West was a big costumer. Mm -hmm. And and she was big in the rhinestones and, at the time. So they were working on the Jackson's uniforms for the show in Las Vegas. And they heard Michael say to Jackie, well, when do you think we're going to find a piano player? So Jackie said, and they didn't know that much about the printed music. And they said, he said to Michael, as soon as we can find somebody that's on time and can come over and sight read the overture. So she sticks her head up as she's sewing. She said, my husband just ran into somebody. <laughs> He said, he said, the guy really knows a lot about music and he's young, he's, he's younger your age, you know. And uh, and he's just, he graduated from that Berkeley school in Boston and uh, and he said he's really uh, can do it all. So, he said, okay, give him this number. So, the, he comes into rehearsal on the third day. Michael. No, the, oh. the singer and says to me, I'm probably going to regret this. Uh, he says, but here, call this number. He said, the Jackson Five are looking for a piano player. So I went up to their house in Encino, near Gelson's, and uh, we met, and I played the overture, and uh, it was a, kind of an auspicious way to get a gig, and Michael turns to Jack and says, that's the way it's supposed to sound. He says, he's playing it the way it's written. He says, we thought something was wrong with the music, because not too many people... You could know, they actually were, play it. Yeah, but I mean, they weren't calling studio guys. They were calling recommendations, friends of friends, high school, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that there were some good players that Subs. came over there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it was a piano conductor score, and by the grace of God, I had learned how to read from a piano conductor score because when oh, I got it wasn't here, reduced. No, it was, it was well, no, it was three. It was three staves. Oh, I so see. you have your your bass clef, your tenor clef, and then a vocal line. But on that vocal oh, sure. line was also cues going in different directions. Sure, sure. Uh, at the time, I, Bill Hughes and guys like that were writing phenomenal piano conductor parts with the chord symbols and the notes that the cellos were playing. Mm -hmm. So if you could read it, you could pretty much play the whole orchestration. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they said, you think you would like to, you know, come work with us? So anyways, I said, absolutely. So I met their manager and we started, I started working with them. And it was, it was really unbelievable because as a family, they were lovely. I mean, they were yeah. great people. Oh yes. They were great to be around. Um, and of course, being from a big family. Uh, um, yeah, you got it. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. It was, it was beautiful. And of course that mom was just terrific. And we all called her mother too. I didn't call it once in a while as a, after the year went by, I called her Kate, but we, we all called her mother because she was just used answering to mother. So, and plus with all those kids. And then I met the, so when I, when I met their school teacher, Rose Fine, um, I was studying a Bach talk, one of my Bach talk scores. And she said, Victor, what are you studying? I said, well, I'm just looking at the, at one of Bach talk's pieces. I just, uh, there's some things in here that I like. I'm trying to, when she said, wow, she said, you should meet my husband, Sydney. She says, he's an orchestrator over at Universal. And, and, uh, and I said, oh, is your husband Sidney Fine? She said, yeah. I said, okay, I'd love to meet him. So I went over to their house on Van Nord in Studio City. And Sidney took a liking to me right away. And, of course, he had gone to Yale. So he knew some of the players that I used to play with when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And we sort of, uh, a, a kinship evolved between him and I. And he started, uh, he said, we're going to teach you, I'm going to teach you how to, uh, how to write for the harp. So order a harp, have it delivered here from SIR. I was making money at the time, so I ordered a harp, and I bought it there to his house, and they bought it to his house. And so for for like a month, he taught me the pedals and how how a harp works, so that he not only taught me how to write for the instrument, but he taught me the physical the limitations. Yeah, I still have a harpist that I send my harp music to. But are you I, proficient on the harp as well? No, only only the pedals, <laughs> <laughs> knowing where all the naturals and the flats go. But sure. I won't. But when I when I pass the music out, I think it was Luann with the L.A. Phil. She came up to me and said to me one time, I don't I haven't seen harp parts like that since Nelson Riddle. So the harpists know it when you 
you know, when you take the time to, they don't have to fake it. Yeah, they know when they yeah. know because the harpists will spend a lot of time correcting yeah, music compensating. for you. Yeah, uh -huh. and I never wanted to do that. I always, I always wanted to do it right. So, um, so I studied with Sydney for a while, and then I met Albert Harris, um, who was, I, I guess, the, t the time he was the president of ASMA, uh, American Society of Music Arrangers. Now it's called ASMAC, and um, I met Albert. And I studied with Albert for many years, and then I, um, I took a few classes with Earl Hagen. And of course, all of these were, and then of course the computers came out, and the the sample started getting better, so you could actually write at home now, and I think all of that sort of, um, sort of synthesized, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. into what I, what it was that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could have I could have played gigs for a long time, and which I always loved doing. Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, I felt guilty when I stopped. I was gigging so much, you know, in the clubs and and uh, and, mm -hmm. and doing and doing being an entertainer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, and so that's where, so that pretty much... Uh, how, how long were you with the Jacksons? Only two years. I see. That's when they had the problem with Motown. Yeah. Then I went on uh, to a couple of other groups, still conducting and playing. I know uh, Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis for a couple of years. That was around 26 or 27. I was what conducting. was he like? He was excellent. A uh, great singer. Yeah. Yeah, he always beautiful say, voice. Yeah. yeah, he used to always say, it's just nice having somebody play for me that really likes my voice. Because that's what he always, I always like, because we would be in the car sometime, and I guess I would say something that would like completely, you know, I, one time we were in the car, and I was, I think I was driving, and he said, gosh, and we were listening to something. Boy, Al Jarreau just got a fantastic voice, and I turned to him without even thinking. Yeah. And you know, I said, well, where do you think he got it from? Listen <laughs> to some of the things he's doing. Yeah. Listen to some of the some of the yes, Al has got an instrument in there. He's got a, a bona fide instrument. But listen to some of the things he's doing, John. I mean, come on, we've uh, we all a, we're all a product of our ears, really. Sure. What we hear, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it was great. The other thing about playing and conducting for for John, especially, and even the Jacksons, um, and Ray, and uh, they had some great orchestrations in their book. And you do them night after night. You kind of remember some of the colors and how the rangers got what they got and i remember one time asking sid feller wow where did you study because I, I used to love the way he wrote mm -hmm. and he said i never did so some of the guys were, were they, they were just naturals sure they heard it and wrote it sure you know so uh i think when you when you have a lot of oh then i i remember one time i had a i had an interview with george Weil, and he wanted to make sure that i could handle conducting for david copperfield because David used a live orchestra, mm -hmm. and they had these beautiful reductions for a theater orchestra of the Barber of Seville. Uh, uh, I can't remember some of the other classical pieces. And I thought, wow, that's a... And, and again, it was Sid Feller who reduced them. He took the original orchestrations and reduced them down to a theater band, and it was pretty unbelievable. And that was another thing that I wanted to get into. So Albert and I also worked with taking piano parts, making them orchestrations, but mm -hmm. also taking orchestrations and, and making them... Yeah, yeah reducing mm -hmm. them. And it was all a, whatever my ear, whatever I was amazed with, I tried to learn. Mm -hmm. Because I figured it's like golf. If you stay at it long enough, you'll eventually be able to take the driver out of the bag. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> a golfers will appreciate that. So it's like if you just hang in there long enough, you'll learn it. You know. Yeah, that's the thing about being a great conductor, too, is that you pick out the parts that are truly interesting that maybe some people missed yeah that's like i mean when, when i sing beethoven nine which i've done a bajillion times when i'm with gustavo i think what what is what is that texture i've never heard that before right yeah, yeah it's 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 pretty much uh and it's nice as a writer i'm not i don't uh 
I mean, I'm a conductor in a pop way, I suppose I would say, and, and sort of semi-classical way too. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I like it when I hear one of my pieces really conducted well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that hard for you to to be in the audience? And no, watch somebody I actually else love do it. it. You I do. love it. Yeah, because I like to see another approach and see what you can. Learn yeah, like it. when I was bringing the singers over for these arias, I said, you know, these arias have no precedent. Nobody else sang them before you, mm-hmm. so I want you to put your your stamp, mm-hmm. your stamp on it. Don't, you know, like I, I realized, you know, uh, growing up being an accompanist that, you know, in the 50s, people listened to Caruso. They listened to and then mm-hmm. later another generation. They listened to Robert Merrill. They listened mm-hmm. to Placido, Pirelli. They yeah, listened sure. to Luciano, mm-hmm. you know. And so I told these guys, no, I said, you know, make them make them your own when you when you sing them. And they were all, and I said, I want you to sing off the page, too. If you see a triplet, that doesn't that's because I had to fit the the lyrics in. I had to break up the... because Sibelius made you do it. Sibelius. <laughs> Very good. I like that one. Sibelius made me do it. I said, you know, it's not. it doesn't have to be a triplet. You can hold back. You can rush it. You could sing it. So it's know. in a Neapolitan style. It's really. in a Neapolitan... Absolutely. Yeah. 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 In the interpretive yeah. style. Yeah. I remember I was singing in Tel Aviv many years ago, and, and I was coaching a Neapolitan song with a pianist, an Italian guy. He says, no, no, no. He stops in the middle of it. I think it was a toasty song or something. He said, no, no, no. No, you, you slow down here. I, I said, where did you learn how to sing this? And I said, oh, from college. I'm, you know, it says to go this time. No, 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 no. You you slow down. I slow down. It's very easy. I, That's uh, right. You speed up. I, I speed, speed up. up. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> exactly lesson. right. Yeah, I mean, especially uh, like, I mean, my one of my favorite interpreters of Neapolitan music was Jimmy Rosselli. Hmm. You probably never heard of him, nope. right? There was, Carlo Butti was another one. Sure. All right. So they had that, when they sang Inamorata, mm-hmm. that word would last forever. Mm-hmm. And they would, you never knew where the downbeat was going to come be. And if the piano player didn't come down. You're so very popular. The, you know, it, it's it's just the way that it, it's it's the interpretation of it, right. and so sometimes when I was writing these arias, when I played them the first time to musicians and lay people, they said they said it either sounds Italian because you're Italian, or it sounds Italian because the words took you there. Right. You know the the words sort of, you know his pope the pope wrote it in Polish, but the translator that translated it into Italian translated it in such a way that while it was difficult to do it. Uh, while it was difficult, it's it also stretched my it stretched my ability to wait until I had a definite cadence. Mm-hmm. So I had to so I had to uh, harmonize in such a way that they, it, the harmony took its yeah, time right. getting it accommodated. Where, the accommodated, yeah. and especially in Italian where you've got what sixty percent more uh, syllables than you would have in English. Mm-hmm. So uh, and I suppose in Polish. Mm-hmm. So it, the book wasn't really meant to be. Um, if you look at the first one, if you look at the first poem, just looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, these are the poems that the Pope, yeah, wrote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the first one, yeah, let's talk about about see, this project. It, you have to yourself, my God, you know, how do you how do you even put? Yeah, how, yeah. How, how do you, you syllabify syllabify yeah, this or yeah syllab how, how do you say it syllabification? Well, we had we had two or yeah. three different ways of saying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still not sure. Yeah, yeah. How do you set that properly? It's like a store. Do you know those that those Italian 
folk songs, the uh, Stornelli. Yeah. It's it's a, uh, yes. The same type of thing. Where exactly. It, it would be so boring if all you heard is da 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 you know, but they put this kind of text that you just showed me and fit it into this. Uh, absolutely. With, with a lot of heart. And right. It's and Jimmy Rossoli and Call of Booty were great at that. Right. They they would, because there's, there's certain times in the, well, a lot of times in the Italian languages, when you have to take off the end of the word and then combine the word with mm-hmm. something else. So sometimes when you see it written down, it doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. But when you hear it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having studied Italian, I was able to, you know, come in here and sit down and start, you know, with the first musical idea. You know, then I had to, you know, well, let's start again. Well, you have again, to hear you know. how, how it's going to, how it would be said. How basically. it would be said. Yeah. Right. You have to hear that. You exactly. have to know how that goes. Exactly. Which I mm-hmm. do with choirs today. If I'm, I'm guest conducting or I'm teaching a choir or I'm doing something, I always have them say it. Almost like orphan could die. Mm-hmm. Let's live this rhythm by saying it. Right. Well, all the music's in the you know, language. Exactly. That's why the Italians invented so much like opera. <laughs> yeah. They invented so much so great I, music. So I look because at a, the damn language. I look at a, I want to eat a pineapple, I think triplet. <laughs> yep. You know, apple, I think eighth notes. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, it. you know, the words are going to tell you what that's your right. rhythm is going to be. That's right. So um, so let's talk about this this project that you're working on now. Uh, explain it to the listeners from, from nuts to bolts. So you've got this, you've got this book, uh, The Roman Tritico, A Meditation by John Paul II. Right. Now, what's the what was the impetus for this text that he wrote? What was his idea for this? He, I, he wanted. I've to, never read this, so I don't know anything about it. During his pontificate, um, uh, this is his actually considered his his last testimony. He wanted to uh, write how he felt about stories in the Old Testament: Abraham, Isaac. Okay. He wanted to also uh, write about how he felt about the Sistine Chapel, which I guess when he finally would start to go to Rome and he wasn't a parish priest anymore he was an archbishop and of course he became cardinal at a very young age Mm -hmm. I think like it did with me you see that Sistine Chapel painting and when you realize that a sculptor painted that and you're looking at it what from what 300 feet 250 feet and you're thinking to yourself you must be kidding you must be kidding yeah I mean now I'm not a religious person Uh, I have the great fortune of singing uh, in the Sistine Chapel right and I, I'm a lover of art. I'm a lover of history. Yeah. I'm a lover of many things. I'm open yeah. to religion. Uh, I had a magnificent experience, like you're describing, despite the fact that I uh, really am not a believer. Right. There's something still so magnificent about seeing there is. What, there, what humans had built. That's what it is. I think, I think it makes you feel good being a human being. It's incredible. It, yeah, it's, it's just that a mind like mine or a brain like mine or a, a guy who was flesh and blood lived until he was 95 in a time when people only lived to 30 or 35 years old uh did this um i mean how do you live to 95 anyway during that time uh, but that in and of itself i think that this particular pope plus the the heroics during world war ii some of the some of the a lot of the people that he saved you know he wasn't politically correct like a lot of the clerics of his time Right. He he went against the grain. He went, and so when I started to read about him, and uh, how much he, you know, like when he came here in eight, in the eighties, you know, the crime in L.A. dropped to zero in the four days that he was here, which is pretty phenomenal. At the time, we were having a lot of crime, yeah, crime wave. Uh, yeah. We still do, but it dropped. It dropped almost to, to zero while he was here. Mm-hmm. Those little things that you hear, you know, that's what makes me feel good about humanity. But when I started to read these 
Why did you start reading them to begin with? Well, I was introduced to them. Um, now, I don't know if I should... Um, I think I should I should leave the how I... If you don't mind. Uh, I, I don't okay. mind. I'll ask you again. <laughs> <laughs> when the time's right. <laughs> uh, did you... Were you having a crisis? No. No, no, no. no. It was actually, it was bought... They were bought to me to ask me if I could musicalize them, what I thought about musicalizing them. And they were bought by, here by a fame, no, no, by a famous opera singer's son. He asked me, Pope the pulpit asked him, "Do you think you could sing these?" So I thought, is that son also an opera director? Could be. Okay, but he asked me if I could, if I, if what I thought. He had just moved down the street from me, and he just came over with all these xeroxes of that first poem. How did he know you were here? My next door neighbor told him. Huh. Okay. So coincidence. Yeah, again. So I said, well, let me see. Let me see what I can do. And, uh, and when he called me back three weeks later, I had one done. But it was it was like it was like pulling teeth. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done because I didn't want to. I it composition wise, I wasn't used to ch ch to that much of that many key changes. I wasn't used to. But I had to look at what I was doing. I had to musicalize this. And the melodies brought me to these different sort of modulations I never expected. But I thought, okay, you know, it it's, works. It is what it is. It is what it is. And when I finally got you, and I still didn't, I still wasn't happy with it. But uh, I still wasn't happy with it. But I thought, well, if this is a shot in the dark. But I did use as much classical uh, training as I had and as much as, as much as I've listened to everything this sort of is like a combination and I'll play you something I'll play one of the demos in a minute let's go back just a second first of all what was this fellow's interest in this work why was he bringing it to you because his father wanted to record it and his father was no longer there no longer on, on this earth and he was no his father was still oh, living he was so yeah. he was doing it for his father his current right. his living father right and there just happened to be a guy two doors down that he met was a first composer. when he moved here okay he met my next door neighbor. He was over there first. Okay. And my next door neighbor said, "Oh yeah, there's this guy living next door to me. I've Italian. known him for 20, 20 years. He's a he's a musician. You'd probably love to meet him." So he walked up one time when I was having a pizza party. Yeah. And introduced himself. And he said, "Can I come back tomorrow morning and talk to you?" And I said, "Sure." So he came back and he bought me these poems. At the time, there were no books. There were just a stack of xeroxes like this. And you'd never seen them before. No. But I started to read them. Well, you have an interest in Catholicism, obviously, and this type of thing. So yeah, it was but interesting. The thing to you, that yeah? I, not only that, I have an interest in Catholicism, but it wasn't really the Catholicism that brought me to that book. Where I mean, the word Catholic is uni means universal anyway. Okay. The fact that they were Old Testament. That, in other words, uh, there's only one little thing in the ten poems that says anything about about Jesus. Mm -hmm. This was more about the Old Testament, about the stories of Abraham and Isaac. And because the Pope was a naturalist, a lot of it has it has to do with nature and how we live in accordance with nature, how we are stewards of nature. Like the opening thing in that, the opening, uh, let me, let me, the opening sentence in that first poem I just showed you is, uh, says, Cuore di Bosco discende al ritmo di montuose Fiumare, which means the heart of the forest descends to the rhythm of mountain streams. So you start to read on and you start to realize the how he felt about the rhythm of nature and how how we how we should interact with nature and how it transcends dogma and how it transcends dogma, God. Re, mm -hmm. especially God. religious dogma. Mm -hmm. And and also too is you know if if you want to change anything in life, 
Yeah, you follow the current of life, but when you want to change something in life, you have to go against the current. Mm -hmm. You be the change. You you ought to be the change. Mm -hmm. So you depart. Don't stand on the threshold of indecisiveness, which is another one of his big words was threshold. Don't stand on on the threshold. Make your make your mark. Do go against him, which is what he did during his when he was in Krakow. He tried to save as many people as he could at the risk of his own life. And then the fact that he went to the prison and to forgive the would be assassin that almost killed him. Mm-hmm. And he forgave him, too. You know, you start to think, well, let me read his let me read more. He's interesting. Yeah, he's interesting. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the fact that he was just a pope. The fact that he was interesting as a man, as a man. Mm-hmm. And he was an actor. He was an athlete. Mm-hmm. He was a lot of things that other the other popes weren't. And that's what kind of, you know, you know, when I was at the convent at six, five or six years old, I was looking at pictures of, you know, of of, you know, the, the Italian hierarchy of, you know, this cardinal came from this family from Milan and, you know, and and mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And he, you know, eventually became pope. This man really interested me because yeah. he didn't come down those lines, so right. to speak. Right. So. So I, I started to read the poems and then I started to, you know, of course, I I, had, I looked up a lot of the words because a lot of them were were not in my lexicon. However, um, I started with that first one and then I played it for this young man. And uh, well, you composed it. And then you I composed it. it. Yeah. Did it compose itself? Yeah, I composed it. Did it I mean, it. really? No, I mean, did it t- kind of you were saying that you were using after uh, the first paragraph? It did that you were using chord structures and key changes and modulations that weren't in your uh, vernacular, so to speak. That weren't, that I wouldn't have used normally. Right. Uh, because there's no, there's no, there's no ritornello. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no, there's nothing to go back to. It's a constant stream of thought, word-wise, lyric-wise. Mm-hmm. Word-wise. And it's a constant stream of thought, music-wise. And you didn't restructure I think Lisa it. Eden, and she was right, she called it, which I do too, through composed. It's sure. through composed from the beginning to the end. Right. So you didn't structure it, restructure it to make it ABA, song no, form, whatever. But they were coming out to five and six and seven and eight minutes long. So I had to decide what to leave out. Hmm. I had to decide what's what 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 can I leave out that's a re, that I don't need to connect this to the next paragraph. Mm-hmm. What can I leave out? Because or else the arias would have been, and they would have been too exhausting for anyone mm-hmm. to sing. They would have been con- they would have been concert pieces. Yeah. Yeah, concert pieces. Right. And way too much for a tenor. And also, I kept them in a pretty, pretty moderate tessitura um i didn't i wanted somebody to be singing these words singing the words yeah, from the heart from yeah. the heart not from the and throat. not having to worry about the yeah you know daughter of the regiment you know so. yeah 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 <laughs> sing it from the throat <laughs> yeah so um yeah um what uh what have you found in this for yourself has is there has it been has it been an exposition for you spiritually or emotionally has this pro- what's this process been like for you? Well, uh, first of all, spiritually, uh, yes, spiritually, yes, because it's sort of like I'm thinking back at the at the priest at the Split Mountain when he said, you know, maybe you were, you know, maybe you need to do something to be to to do some good for people, and you know, uh, I I I volunteer a lot um, at a hospital here, Holy Cross, on a Tuesday. I do that, and uh, but that's not enough. I mean, I. It, it's it's good. I like what I do, but I when I started this, I I really started. Well, that's fulfilling. This is fulfilling musically and spiritually, and I can't live out the rest of my life without feeling fulfillment musically. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm 69. The, the phone doesn't ring as much as it should. Mm-hmm. However, um, I think I'm at the top of my game. Um, I think this is the music is really really good. I know that the players are going to enjoy each part we have. There's not a, a 
in all of the 10 arias, there are beautiful laid out solos for oboe, English horn. Mm -hmm. Violin plays a solo. There's a cello solo. So it's a full band. There's, it's a, it's a uh, strings, woodwinds, French horn, harp, and percussion. Wow. Yeah, no trumpets, trombones. Okay. I always remember. And what's the through line? I, I, in other words, is, is this a show that you're putting together? Is this is there some arc to the drama, or are, there, are they being presented as vignettes and separate concert they're, pieces? They're being presented. Um, How are you seeing it as a show? I'm seeing it as it's. In other words, the the opening. It, the show is called La Sorgente, okay. which means the source. Okay. And I explained to the people that. Uh, the source, if you Google it, you know, a lot of people, call, they love to call their restaurant La Sorgente because it mm -hmm. sounds good. But in and of itself, the word means source or wellspring. And uh, in in Spanish, it's called La Fuente. Mm -hmm. And basically, what it, the whole evening is about is about the wellspring of us as people and how we co-inhabitate with plants and animals into this mother earth, into this fertile madre, into this fertile crescent, so to speak. And and each poem is about how we were created, how we were we were we were created to 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 come here and do and do good. Be and shepherds of the be things. shepherds and stewards of mm -hmm. the planet and everything on it. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't go up there and say anything about the oil in the ground or the salt here or anything. I'm just I'm I'm laying it out for you. You you as the listener choose how you want to hear it you you pick if anything that i'm going to say or that you hear spoken because we're going to broadcast the words on the wall at the ford by musical phrase so if you hear cuore di basco discende mm -hmm. you're going to see heart of the forest descends so you're not going to see it in a paragraph where you're going to go where the heck is he you're going to see it as he's singing or she mm -hmm. because the, the overarching theme of the whole thing is that stewardship um, sacrifice, um, how we should put others first, the kindness we show to others, um, how Abraham was tested, you know, why did he become the father of many nations? Why did he become the head of the three tribes of Israel? Uh, there's a reason why he was even put here, you know, why was his name Abram before it was Abraham? Because he was just like you and I. Just that he was wandering in the desert, you know. Uh, why did he have a son? While and his wife, they were so advanced in years. Why did they have a son? You know. Why was he asked to sacrifice that son? You know. Why did all these people back then have to travel so much and give up so much, especially the tribes? Why did they suffer so much? And there's a reason for that. And I say, in the, I say during the evening. Look, I heard two people talking about Hamlet one time, and the interviewer said to the interviewee, "How did you like Hamlet?" He said, "I loved it." He said, did you understand it? He goes, well, not too much. He said, well, to understand Hamlet, you have to understand Shakespeare. So it's the same with these stories. Mm -hmm. You know, They're nice stories to hear. When I heard them when I was young, I liked them because they were stories. Yeah. Now I look at them in a different way because I understand where they came from. Mm -hmm. um, so there's both schools of thought, but certainly they can both coexist. You know, Modern day scholars can think the way they want to think, but we still have it. It's there. It's there for us. So... That's about what the evening is about. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I, the audience goes through a bit of intellectualism and faith. So I'm calling it Woodstock for the Faithful. You know, as an atheist, I can draw a lot of uh, value from those messages. Yeah. Because I believe in everything that you outline. 
as yeah. far as what you, your version or your intent for the show is, you know, to be stewards of nature and it, to take care of one another. Absolutely. And look, you that's, know, that's, I mean, Jesus was the, the first liberal. He was as liberal as he was. He was a social revolutionary. Absolutely. I mean, he was as revolutionary as you get. And when, yes. you, when you read, sometimes when you read a story, you see a story and go, wow, he must have sounded crazy. But, you know, the, 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 the point of even this concert is, well, first of all, the music is soaring. It's almost romantic in a way. And when you couple it with these words that weren't meant to be musicalized, mm -hmm. the, singers, the singers are having a, a great time with it. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in the case of uh, all of them, especially Lisa, they know what they're singing already. They've already translated. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're excited because they're, they're going to sing something that most of them actually believe. So it's it's uh, and this is going to be the first time that I'm going to be conducting something that the audience is not only there for the musical enjoyment, but they're also there for the spiritual hang. And and it's also for me, it's sort of a it's sort of a a, a, a life journey because, you know, at 12 years old or 13 years old, I was not playing in a church. I was playing in a wise guy bar, right? Watching guys with pinky rings and fancy cologne. You know, there's my dad sitting there with whatever their Whatever, whatever kind of suit he could hobble together yeah. to look presentable to bring his son to make his fifteen bucks. So it wasn't like I was in a church somewhere. I was, I was, I, I sort of saw all both sides of life and, and made my decision what I was going to do. And and you know, uh, it, and I've been able to survive in Hollywood. I mean, I, you know, uh, that's a real trick. Yeah, right I there. Mean, you know, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I just, you know, what it is too. I think. You know, I'm just I try to be good to everybody. Yeah, I've made my mistakes in the past. I've I've been flippant with people. I've been arrogant when I was younger. Um, I thought who the heck I was. But then you grow older and you grow wiser and you start to realize what you're really here for is to make everyone. And how are you going to be remembered? How are you going to be remembered? That's a big question that yeah, I always how, ask exactly, myself. Exactly. You know, I I think I think it, uh, I think like somebody said to me, do you really have a soulmate? I mean, besides my wife is my soulmate, you know. When you get to a certain point in your life, and you will too, um, when you like, I wasn't, uh, I was different than my dad. All my brothers are different than my dad. Um, he was there just to be a father. He never was there to be a friend. But my generation. That was the paradigm, though. That was the, exactly. That was the paradigm of the time. Yeah. In my case, I was a dad for the first 30 years. Then I became a dad and a friend after 30 years. Mm -hmm. And today I have to say that my son is, uh, my son, we, we feel each other. We, there's something there that uh, you, you can't, it's unspoken, it's actually unspoken, but when we look at each other, it's, you know, and and that's, uh, you know, when I look at him and he looks at me, you, there's something there that you, that's unspoken, and that's yeah. what I think how I'm going to remember it in his eyes, and hopefully his children will be remembered the way I, that way he's going to remember me. So I, that's what I think is important. Did your dad ever show you that? No. Uh, <laughs> um, well, he would say things like, of, of course I feel that way. What do you think? I said, well, it would be nice if you said it once in a while. I said, and you know, guys like to hear that. I mean, I'm sure George Patton's father yeah. must have said, oh, George, you're a good soldier. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, you you can't just go through life like it's all Sturm und Drang. You know, right. it's like, you know, you, you know, look at poor Beethoven. Look what he had to go through. Is that part of what uh, what uh, motivated you to create and maintain this relationship with your son? 
Uh, or did it no, just turn it out that way? Or it, I think it was just, my mother was such a good mother. My brothers are good mothers. All my brothers were really good moms. I mean, even our wives say it, you know, we're, we're tough on one end, but we're very genteel on the other. So I think it was my mom that instilled in us the, that parent, because I don't think there's anything wrong with the father being a female, uh, showing the female side, showing the, and I think men at that time, like you said, the paradigm was that, well, we have to be men, mm -hmm. you know, John Wayne, uh, you know, like, oh, I just talked to my mother this morning. <laughs> she's 93 and she still gabs away. So we have a lot of conversations and, you know, he took it, you know, he, he wasn't this, but he took you guys hunting and you learn how to skin rabbits and he took you fishing and he made you play ice hockey and he made you, you know, everything was in the backyard, the basketball hoop, the badminton, croquet, every, I mean, whatever. So he, because he wanted us where he could see us. He wanted yeah. us not just around him, but he wanted to be there for us and you know the first little outboard motor he got us and the first little boat and he put it in the water for us and he showed us respect for rifles and shotguns and i don't own a gun today yeah. but i have respect and i have respect for people that do own guns and i have respect for people that don't like guns so you know a lot of times it gives you a when you have a father like that it you know yeah plus he was there for all the i mean i did some terrible i got thrown off of being an altar boy right in the middle of mass nobody gets thrown off the altar i was asked to leave the altar during mass and he and what was i afraid of when i got home as at that age i was just afraid of i was just afraid of disappoint i was afraid that's of it. disappointing him that's it but i was also afraid of the wrath of my mom because when she got going because he was so strong he didn't want to hurt us so she was the one that took over sometimes the hitting which at the time it was common to be hit of course and you know getting thrown off the altar right in the middle of mass i mean it, that's like that's as bad as it gets that's as bad as it gets so <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you a precocious childhood so you know but i think when you look back at all that what shaped you yeah you know they did their jobs well. They did their, and I think that that generation, like they said, well, the World War II generation was the. No, I think the World War II, their kids were. My generation was a good generation, the fifties and the sixties and the seventies. I think that that, you know, late forties, fifties, and sixties. I think that's the, you know, they. It's it, it's getting it's different today. Sure. You know, yes, we're producing some great minds. We have some, but you you look around you and you don't see like I was in a restaurant, recently, and the whole family's. At the sitting at a table with this yeah and i thought what good are you what so you take your family out to dinner and they're all like this On nobody's engaging yeah. conversation yeah i mean do you realize what you're missing when you get older you know and and it's time it's stealing time and as a parent you have to say that because you have to go against the current again that's what this you've got to go against the current i even mentioned it in the show we we, we have no time for reflection nobody reflects so that they're afraid to look at themselves you know, stop. Take a look at yourself. Am I doing the same thing I did yesterday? Am I doing the same thing I did 10 years ago? Do I feel any different about myself than I felt about myself 10 years ago? But the reflection and the self-introspection is gone because of... You're being tricked to think that you're actually accomplishing, accomplishing something. Absolutely. But really what you're doing is you're just sitting down staring at something you're all day. At all day. That's all day. In reality, you're just sitting around. Exactly. Just now, it's beautiful. Like we just got to, when the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about, you know, being able to do music on it, sending PDFs, right. sending files. Uh, it's a tool. It's a tool. These kids get it. They could do garage band. Fantastic. It's a tool. But don't. But once in a while, put the tool down and and take a breath of fresh air. Look around. Look around you. You know. Mm -hmm. So but let's talk specifically about this show. Tell me again the name. La Sorgente. Sunday, October eighth, seven thirty p.m. John Anson Ford Amphitheater. Call them for tickets. Sounds like a great show, Vic. Thanks for being on the show. 
You're welcome. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Victor Vanacore. Thanks, Vic, for being on the show. I really enjoyed sitting and chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit. Fascinating fellow. It's my uh, favorite thing. One of my favorite things to do in life is uh, meeting new people, just generally. But boy, when I get to meet new, fascinating, accomplished, open, sincere, candid people, and I get to record it, and I get to share it, well, that's about as good as it gets, people. I'd also like to thank Libby Hubner, owner of AdLib Communication. She's the one that set this up for me reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this guy. I think you should meet him. She's done all sorts of work for the LA Master Chorale, LA Children's Chorus, LA Chamber Orchestra, on and on and on. Look her up on LinkedIn. Tell her I said hi. Thank you all for listening. Happy Monday, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. Really appreciate all of your support. And if you personally enjoy the show, please do go to iTunes and uh, rate review and subscribe to my podcast. I sure would appreciate it. We're bringing in a few bucks now, and that uh, kind of support would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Remember to always be kind to one another. And until next time. long walks and you wear clean pants, genius. Get onto my show.